You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. One of the one of the really uh, interesting things about what I'm bringing this morning, uh, just in my own self, is this sense of like a lot. Anyone know what that feels like? You know what I mean? Like like you're walking through stuff that maybe feels more chaotic than it should, or more no- like like you're normal. At least you want to believe it's somewhat even tempered and sort of like level. But what you're experiencing maybe is like well, chaos in some ways. And it it may not be like you're going through something bad. Like it it could totally just be you're going through things that are like busy. You know, that's me right now. Why would you? Why would you go through anything that's busy? Why would would our lives be busy at all? But they are. And um, I've really uh, found this out. I'm, I'm actually about to graduate from a program I've been in for a long time. And um, I'm writing a thesis, and I'm doing all this stuff, and trying to maintain my, my sanity. And um, one of the things that I've just come to believe is that um, during seasons like that, there's something very beautiful and good about in that chaos, in those moments, like just naming, hey, what if Jesus was okay with this chaos and was with me in it? You know what I mean? Like, like, like what, if, what if I actually could experience the life of Jesus in the midst of what feels like chaos? And, and what would that be like? And, and, and so I, I, I guess I bring that up because um, life isn't as clean and easy as we want it to be. And we're in a series on, like, the kingdom of God. We've been talking about as it is in heaven. And, and what we've been trying to do is to say regular life can exist with Jesus, right? And, and, and one of the challenges of that, though, is what we're experiencing often is sort of the grid through which we think our spirituality is measured. So many times what you're walking through has an effect, like if you're a follower of Jesus, so many times I know in my own life, like, like if you're a follower of Jesus, it's like what I am experiencing as chaos is translated to me and therefore God must be distant or maybe I'm not doing enough because I'm so busy. And, and what, what I want to invite us to think about is like, what if, what if it's okay? What if it's okay? And what if it's actually okay to have seasons that go up and down and are like winding weird because that's how life really is in the world. We, I think so often, like in my own journey, I've wanted my life with God to be this, like this sort of like straight, consistent, obvious sort of thing, but the world isn't really set up for us to experience God that way. And so what if we got to a place where we we're just okay with it. I, I think that beneath the chaos for a lot of us, there's still desire. And maybe sometimes desire, desire for God, desire to live in this thing we call the kingdom of God or the space where God is present, 
maybe that desire is something we should affirm rather than saying, I have this desire, things are chaotic, therefore I must not be that spiritual. Because that's really, like, that's the pattern my brain goes into. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know God. I want to experience the goodness of the kingdom of God, right? And then, and then I, I, I enter a space that is like, ugh. I've, I've been, by the way, describing my experience right now outside of these last couple of days as the cave. Maybe you've been in that scenario before where, like, if you were to come to my office right now at home, I, I have just scatterings of books and articles just all over the floor. And I have probably a dish or two that are like two days old on, the, on my desk. And, you know, like it's just chaos. And, and, and the way I typically am tempted to interpret that experience is I have this deep desire to experience Jesus and to experience Jesus through my loved ones. But I have this cave experience, this crazy, like this chaos. Therefore, I must not really be that tapped into God, Jesus, my family, whatever, right? And, and what I want to say is that it is possible to come back here to the space of desire and to bless that desire and to invite Jesus to just say, okay, chaos is going to happen. Your desires for me, I, that's, that's beautiful. That's good. It won't feel the same every time but bless the desire. So I want to talk about desire this morning, um, and I'm going to do it in kind of an odd way, which won't surprise anyone, but I, um, I, I just think that, uh, and here's our, our big, big idea today, right? As we participate in the kingdom of God with Jesus, our desires can increasingly become like his. We can become more like Jesus. That's, that's like where I want to go this morning. And I, I wanted to name the fact that when I think about desire, when, when we think about like life with Jesus, we're talking about life. We're not talking about an idealized version of what we think perfection looks like. And, and so, excuse me. So as we do that, I want to talk about this concept that took me back to my, my teenage years a little bit. All in. All in. What does the phrase all in bring up in your mind? Like, what's the first thing you think of? Anyone? Come on. Sports what? Sports and poker. Poker. Yeah, yeah. Sports and poker. Right? The two things that God definitely blesses the most in the world. Um, and, and yeah, like, I thought of poker. And, and I thought of um, poker nights when I was in high school. I, you know, I wasn't a guy who's like, oh, I'm so into poker. But I had some buddies that were. And we had this, like, this friend. He lived down by the river. And, uh, look, I grew up in a weird, not Seattle place, right? So people had houses by rivers. And there were, like, ropes into the river that you could jump into the water. It's awesome, right? And, and um we had this like shed out there. There was like a screened in porch where we would have like poker nights and there may or may not have been underage cigar smoking happening. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was like crazy because you got like a dozen dudes in a room that are like 16 to 18 years old and we're playing Texas Hold'em and there would be these moments that just got intense because it would be like a one-on-one -on -one situation, and all of a sudden, everyone would know that someone was about to consider going all in. 
And, and so my buddy who like lived there, right, would turn on this insane loud music, right, to bring the intensity as we're making the decision. And all the dudes, I don't even know what this is about, would just start yelling, pot, 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 pot. And we weren't smoking weed, I promise. But like, like, just like put it all in, put it into the pot, pot, pot. And we just get nuts, right? It was ridiculous. Like we didn't need anything to stimulate our chaos. You know, we didn't drink. We didn't, we didn't need that because we were just dorky already, right? And, and I just remember that moment when someone would put the whole thing in there, they'd put it all on the line, and then that card would get flipped, and everyone would go, oh, because someone had either lost or won. Like, that was, like, deep all-inness. You know what I mean? I, I just, oh, we know. And if you've ever been to a place where you do this in a more professional setting, um, I don't encourage gambling per se, but maybe you have been in a place where um, you can imagine, like, all in is a big deal for some people. You've heard of high rollers, maybe. I think of all in, and I think of another thing in high school. I, I was an athlete, and so during my junior and senior year, we had a coach who invested in us, mentored us, and um, about five of us would get up at 5.30 in the morning and meet at the gym, and we would work out five days a week with this coach, and then a bunch of us would work out after school as well. And I just remember that season, I look back at it, and I'm like, man, we were really all in on that. You know what I mean? Like, we were just totally sold out. Like, this is everything that we're going to do right now is we're going to focus on becoming as strong as we can, as fast as we can, because next season, we want to win. And so we did, and it was awesome. I did a Google search of All In and a weird article that I don't even know if it's legit. It's probably clickbait, but I thought it was hilarious. Came up that basically was about going from emo to dreamo. And it had like two pictures. I didn't bring any, but like one picture is like totally emo from like 10 years ago. Like, ugh, dark and, you know, all that good stuff, right? And then on the other side, it's like the family man who's like clean shaven and like, I grew up. I'm dreamo now, right? And all these like emo to, and I was just like, oh, it's so funny. Like how often, and it's not a bad, like, like people are tempted all the time to like go all in on image, and I'm not making fun of either Dreamo or Emo, I'm just simply saying, like, like we go all in, I went for a season, I was all in on skateboarding, I mean, I was like the guy, I had all the right clothes, back then it was cool to wear really baggy pants, well, I thought it was cool, to wear really baggy pants, so I had my beyond baggy anchor blue jeans, I had my DC shoes with some shoe goo up on those, because I'd been doing too many, only like two of you get that reference, but like, yep, and uh, I, I, I was just all in on skating. Like, so you could probably look back at your life and say, there are times in my life when I have been all in, like my desire was to be just totally immersed in this thing, and it was energizing, it was the best I ever was at that thing maybe, or it was just exciting, and then for whatever reason, you probably, not everybody, but you probably had a season where you had to transition away from that vision of all in, and it became something else you were all in, all in on family, all in on work, all in on parenting, all in on my, my friends, all in, you know, and and over and over again, we probably know what it's like to feel as though we're all in. And sometimes it's absolutely life-giving and good. And sometimes we act like we're all in, but we really desire something else. We're all in by force. We're all in because we have no other option. At least we feel that we have no other option. 
And so sometimes all in can be something that we're excited about. Sometimes it can be hard. Sometimes all in, we would say, like, if I look back at my life, like, there were times when I was all in on stuff that was greatly misdirected. And maybe that's part of your story. And, and what I want to do this morning is say, look, if, if desire is something that God wants to increase within us, desire for Jesus, desire to live life in the kingdom, and if that's the case, like, what does it look like to, to really, like, see that it is okay, like, this drive that some of us have to be all in on things is a good drive. And, and one of the challenges is, though, is that our desires and our all-in-ness match up with actually what's going to be the most life-given in our lives. And so I want to start in a weird passage in the Hebrew Bible in... Um, where are we starting? We're starting in Numbers chapter 25 this morning, and I want to take you on a journey of what for an ancient Hebrew person all in looked like. Now, before I jump too far into this, one of the things I need to mention is that a couple of these passages are the kind of passages that get us a little, oh, I can't believe God used to be like that. You know what I mean? Oh, I can't believe there's so much violence and so much like well, ugly stuff in the Hebrew scriptures at times, right? And, and of course, like I'm... I, eventually we actually want to have a whole series on wrestling with what do we do like with the scriptures and the two testaments and that kind of stuff. All I will say is that I try to read the Hebrew Bible through the lens of Jesus and I allow Jesus to be my grid through which I understand it. And, and I know that maybe God operated a certain way at one time, but Jesus is like, I used to, but I don't now. If at least that much. And there's way other kind, there's all kinds of other ways to talk about it. But if you can suspend judgment on there, there's going to be some weird violent things happening. I'm going to try and take you somewhere that I think will connect the dots to desire and what maybe all in this can look like for us as we step into this space with Jesus. And so this is a story. It comes out of Numbers chapter 25. I'm just going to read a few verses. And what you need to know is that... Uh, this is in a season where uh, the people of God have been moved out of Egypt, and now they're wandering the desert. They're trying to figure out their identity. You know, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, um, Genesis, <laughs> I can't even say, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were in Numbers, so they're not even in the promised land yet, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be uniquely Yahweh's uh, people, but as you know, when you're wanting to go all in on something and it involves sacrifice of things, sometimes it's tempting to pull back from my all-in commitment and notice that there's other options here. Do you, you see what I'm saying? And, and Israel found other options. And this is why um, we, we jump into this story where Israel is starting to worship foreign deities and to marry foreign, the men are marrying foreign women. And, and this is a big problem because God is saying, I need one people to carry forward the message of hope, healing, and reconciliation. And if you mix that up, the mission can't move forward. And so that's where we find ourselves. And so the story starts like this. While Israel was staying at Shittim, and yes, it looks funny, and I almost said it a lot worse than that, um, but I remembered Eim, so that helps. 
So while Israel was staying at a poo place, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Thus, Israel yoked itself to uh, the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. Jumping down. Then, just then, one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman into his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of Israelites while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Why are they weeping? Because people are going astray and it's painful and they're having to deal with this. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he got up and left the congregation. Taking a spear in his hand, he went to the Israelite man into the tent and pierced the two of them, the Israelite and the woman, through the belly. So the plague, because there's a plague that's outbroke, right? Because God is like, hey, if you're not going to do this my way, you're going to see my protection lifted. So the plague was stopped among the people of Israel. Nevertheless, those that died by the plague were 24,000. This is, again, very scary, weird stuff happening. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal, hang on to that word, such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy, I did not consume the Israelites. Therefore, I say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So Phineas is a character in the Torah that when he sees people defying the way of God, has so much passion and zeal. He's so all in on being liberated from Egypt and heading for the promised land. He's so all in on this thing God is doing in their midst that when someone in the front of all the people decides that they're going to defy that vision, Phineas decides that taking one spear and throwing it between two people is good, and in this context of this season of the story of the scriptures, God not only affirms it, but blesses him. And this tradition of Phineas will carry forward. We're going to talk about that. For instance, in the Psalms, Psalm 106, 30 and 31, it says this, Then Phineas stood up and interceded, and the plague was stopped. And that has been reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Zeal being all in for a Jewish person looks like Phineas during the time leading up to Jesus. You may have heard of another person. We're going to move a, a few more steps in the story. Someone named Elijah. Elijah becomes another model of zeal. There's this contest that happens in 1 Kings chapter 18 between 
himself and the prophets of a foreign deity. And you may remember the story. He's like doing this whole thing where they're trying to cause this fire to happen. And so they can't do it. Their magicians can't do it. So Elijah says, God, bring fire onto this pile of wood. And Elijah calls down the fire and wins this contest. And of course, a bunch of people die. It's, you know, it is what it is. But he becomes another person of zeal. And and so he's having this conversation with the angel of God. Because after this, he goes to a mountain and, and God says, I'm going to show you myself. And finally, he gets this picture, this deep, intimate revelation with God. And this is what it says in that conversation. He answered, I have been very, again, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Yet I will leave, check this out, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And, and here's, here's what happens in between those two passages. In between there, you have Elijah saying, look, I feel like I'm all alone in this. I feel like I've got nothing left to give and no one is coming alongside of me. And it's at this point that God will provide Elisha, right? I always mix those two up. Elijah starts to mentor Elisha and and this moves God and, and God decides rather than destroying, rather than giving up on Israel, God changes God's own mind in that story and decides, no, 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 I'm going to save 7,000 people and we're going to continue the project and move forward. Elijah becomes a picture of zeal. I'm going to show you how this comes together. So, so that's like um, four, five, six hundred years, right, before Jesus. And now, now we move They go into exile. You may remember the story, right? So Israel and Judah are conquered. They go into exile. They're in Babylon. They come back. And after they've sort of re-inhabited the land, those few hundred years before Jesus, Alexander the Great is doing his thing, right? And all this stuff's going on. All this activity is going on in the world. There comes a moment where the, the people of Israel Empire after empire is telling them what to do. The people of Israel are being told they should compromise their way of life. They should stop only worshiping God. They should be okay with all the inclusive things that are happening because in the, in the end of the day, Hellenism is really good for the world. So they're, they're like, what do we do? And so a few people, a few brave people rise up. And so in the in, in the book of 1 Maccabees, which is actually for Protestants in the Apocrypha, in 1 first, first Maccabees, we actually get the entire story of what happened during that season in Israel. And in 1 Maccabees, it's very interesting because although we don't call this scripture in our tradition at least, for a lot of Jews at the time, this is scripture as they read it. And for a lot of folks at the time, they, they are bringing together their past and trying to figure out how to navigate the future as they tell this story. And, and I want to just note something, and this is in 1 Maccabees chapter 2. So early on in the story, this is Matthias is his name, and he's going to uh, 
He's basically the father who is like asking his sons to carry on this legacy. And eventually you will have someone named Judas Maccabeus, not the other Judas, right? Different Judas. A lot of Judases, by the way, in the first century. So uh, this Judas is called Judas Maccabeus. And, and basically his name means the hammer. And yes, I love me some MC Hammer as a kid. And, and the hammer is going to take care of business. And the way they motivate themselves is by looking back at their scriptures together, looking back at the story. And this is what they remember. Matthias, uh, Mattathias, I should say, says it this way in verse 51. Remember the deeds of the ancestors, which they did in their day, and you will inherit great honor and everlasting remembrance. Wasn't Abraham found faithful when he was tested and it was considered righteousness? Joseph kept the commandment in the time of his distress and he became a ruler of Egypt. And here we go. Our ancestor Phineas received the covenant of everlasting priesthood because he was deeply zealous. Joshua became a judge in Israel because he fulfilled the commandment. Caleb received an inheritance in the land because he testified in the assembly. David inherited the throne of the kingdom forever because he was merciful. And Elijah was taken up into heaven. By the way, that happens later in the story. He gets to just go straight up to heaven in the tradition. Elijah was taken up into heaven because he had great zeal for the law. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael believed and were rescued from the flames. Daniel was delivered from the lion's mouth because of his innocence. So you see that from generation to generation, no one who continues to trust God will lack strength. And so over and over and over again, Israel finds themselves tempted to do something that is to go all in on other gods, to scatter their allegiance maybe. And over and over again, God provides a faithful few who say, no, 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 we are gonna be all in. And the word that comes to mind when we think about being all in in ancient Judaism is zeal. Zeal then is a big deal. Huh, that was weird. Zeal is a big deal, though, because for God, in the face of pagan empires, someone has to stand up and say, we are all in. Our desire is for the goodness of God, even when circumstances do not match up with what we actually desire, even when the world feels chaotic. And so, we have a person, of course, in the New Testament who models this same sort of all-inness, who models the same sort of zeal because that's his backstory. His backstory says Phineas is an example of what it looks like to make sure that the movement of God stays pure and good. Elijah is what it looks like to call down fire from heaven to make sure that the movement is good. And over and over again, all the way through the Maccabean period, they are affirmed by God because of this impulse. 
And then a young rabbi named Saul, Saul, we call him Paul, emerges on the scene. And he sees his life as an extension of that storyline. He is all in on Israel's God. And he, even at the defiance of his teacher, we find in Acts, there's a teacher that he studied under named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, when asked about the Jesus movement, says, if it's of God, it'll move forward, but let's just let it be. Saul, Paul, will not let that approach stand. And against the tradition of his own rabbi, becomes zealous in the way of Phineas, in the way of Elijah. This is what it says after Paul's like reflecting on what he used to understand Israel's God like. This is how he says it in Galatians. He says, you have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. By the way, earlier life in Judaism isn't, I'm no longer a Jewish man. It's the way I understood the Phineas lineage that I adopted, right? That former way of existing with Israel's God as a Jewish man. You've heard of that earlier life. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people and of the same age. Again, he's young. For I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Can you imagine Paul reading that passage, that story in 1 Maccabees and saying, I want to be like these people. I want to be these kind of people. Or going back to Numbers and saying, Phineas gets it. Of course, we have to snuff out compromisers. The move of God is at risk here. He was zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. So what we have so far is I was this sort of uh, Jewish man. I was zealous. I understood my vocation. I was all in on making sure that Israel's God was upheld. And anyone who wanted to dilute that, anyone who wanted to bring in other ideas like a fake Messiah, and this is not going to happen. We have to stay pure. We have to stay set apart because if we're not all in in this moment, the Romans are always going to be our overlords. And of course, people who stayed the path that Saul, Paul was on eventually end up defending Jerusalem in 68, 69, and 70 CE. We bring this up all the time because it's so important, right? Eventually, these very same people will be defending the temple, be defending the holy city against the Romans. And what does zeal lead to? It leads to the destruction of everything. And the city is leveled. This was the trajectory Saul, Paul, was on. And yet in that storyline, 
Jesus intervenes, reveals himself, and the violent zealot becomes a zealous, all-in kind of person in a different kind of way to teach that the nations, the outsiders, could be part of the movement of God. And the rumors, of course, are circulating because he sort of like has to go away. He hides away. He pops into Jerusalem for a couple of days. He leaves the passage, tells us. He ends up in the desert for a few years. He ends up somewhere else for like 14 years. And then all of a sudden he comes back and you start really seeing the impact of his ministry. But what he heard about himself at that point was simply this from Jerusalem. They only heard it was said. The Jerusalem church the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. I want to talk about how we can go all in on the wrong thing for a moment. We can go in all in on the wrong thing. And I, I think one of the the, the mind-boggling things I, that I see in this storyline, this trajectory that we see illustrated in the zeal and the re-sort of shaping of what zeal can be, is that I don't think that Paul's instinct for zeal, that Paul's instinct to be all in, was bad in and of itself. Actually, I think our human instinct to go all in on something can be beautiful, can be God-honoring, like, I think there's a lot of things that we should be all in on. If, if you're a parent, you should be all in on nurturing your kids. If you're a friend, you should be all in on being there for your friend. But once in a while, or maybe a lot of the while, our all-in posture gets pulled in a direction that pulls us away from the possibilities of life with Jesus in the kingdom. Like our all-inness kind of pulls us towards all these other things that we think we've got to deal with. And by the way, I'm not saying like outside of the kingdom, like you're not saved or whatever. I'm talking about the experiential life with God here. Like, like it is possible to be all-in and be focused and to be pumped up about whatever's going on in your world. And to subtly realize that you, you've lost your all-in passion for what really matters. It's also possible to be all-in all on Jesus. And as an extension on, of that all-in-ness with Jesus, all of these other things that do matter, that do have value, that really count in your life, all of a sudden you're all in on those as well, but in a different kind of way with a different set of resources because when you're all in with Jesus, life is totally different. Your life can be totally different, but I think so often our desire for Jesus as followers of Jesus can get muddied up by the chaos, can get muddied up by the things that we think we've got to do. We've got to be these people. I've got to be the kind of person that looks right, that acts right, that talks right, that has the right stuff going on. And our identity gets wrapped up in other things. And Jesus is saying, hey, like, your passion to be all in on stuff is great. Come be all in with me. Come be zealous with me. Let me re-navigate the spaces within you that feel so compelled to let all of these external things define who you are becoming as a human being. 
Let me do the defining so that you can be refined and move into those things with a different posture, with a different set of resources. And that's what I love about the story of Paul. The story of Paul is that Paul's zealousness was redirected towards kingdom desires. God didn't say, you're zealous, don't be zealous. Rather, you're zealous and violent, now you're going to be zealous and suffer. What a paradox. What an utter paradox. You were zealous in this way, but you can re-navigate that zealousness through a peaceful, loving, humble, Jesus-like sort of posture towards life. And 2,000 years later, we are not reading about Paul, the guy who snuffed out that movement. We're reading about Paul, the guy who tried to snuff out that movement and who had a radical transformation and whose identity was changed. And he didn't become a perfect person. He didn't escape the chaos. That's what's, that's what's sort of like awesome about someone like this story. Like, like if, if you and I can relate to anyone, it's him. You know what I mean? Like, like, like it's not like, oh, I am now following Jesus and my life is so happy. The guy struggles with depression, I'm pretty sure, at times. The guy struggles with questions of, is this really worth it? Like, am I running the race in vain? Like, I don't even know. Like, like am I even on the right path? And over and over again, he gets this word. It's, it's just, oh, it's so beautiful. Jesus is like, but my grace is sufficient. Like, my grace is enough. Desire me. It is enough. And so what we simultaneously get in Paul's life is someone who learns how to navigate that world differently. We don't look at Paul because he's perfect. We look at Paul because he's messed up and changes the world with Jesus anyway. That's what I think is so fascinating. And you know, like I was thinking about this and I was thinking about like, like Paul would have probably inherited some stories about Jesus. Like the New Testament isn't all shaped at this point. Like it's still sort of coming together. But, but Paul would have known like the stories of Jesus. I, I really think that Paul knows the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we get the Lord's Prayer that we'll pray together in a little bit here. And, and what's so awesome is that, that I think his life ends up modeling what Jesus teaches. And this is one of the things that really brings it together for me. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, it says, Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, stop worrying about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's in the context 
of worry. It's in the context of our zeal, our all-inness being scattered in ways that redirect our energy, that redirect our attention to I've got to fix this thing in my life. I've got to fix that thing in my life. I've got to make sure this thing is working right. In the context of all of that, Jesus comes in and says, no, no, like, like, delay your worrying. Like, defer worry for later. Desire something. Do you see what the reframe really does? Like, like I can imagine Paul. Paul was zealous and partially because he was worried that this movement of God was going to be snuffed out by these heretics. And what happens? His desire changes. It's redirected. And Jesus teaches us that ours can be too. As we close, I I invite you to consider what it would look like to invite the spirit of Jesus to transform your desire. Desire, I think, is one of the birthplaces of the things that we start to lean into in life. Our desire can be the space that gives us permission to explore, permission to um, navigate things differently, permission to fail in different kinds of ways. Desire is the space within our hearts and our imagination where Jesus can, can walk with us and help us see that at the end of the day, what we worry about, the things that we long for, yes, sometimes are utterly important. Sometimes like our life and death scenarios. But desire changes how we face life and death. I was thinking about this and trying to like wrestle with examples of this. And and I just think of people in my own life who I've seen who were zealous in one way and become zealous in a different kind of way with Jesus. And they inspire me. This week I've been, or yeah, in the last couple of weeks, we have this book where Lauren put together a photo library of my grandpa. Uh, and I spoke at his funeral back in 2010. And so she, she took quotes from that funeral and just scattered them throughout this book. And so now Lydia like, sees it, never met my grandpa, but wants to read it during story time, which is very endearing. And what's so amazing is like my grandpa was always a Christian, always loved God, but there was something about the last 10, 15 years of his life that I just noticed this like radical softening and this like posture of desire, like nothing else mattered to him, just Jesus. Just Je- like, and it wasn't like, like I- I'm ignorant to all my problems. It was Jesus shapes how I see the world. Even when he was dying, it was, I have peace. I have desire for Jesus. All is well. And the last thing he asked while he was in hospice care, he prayed. He said, my desire for my family is that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren would know Jesus. That was his dying wish. And I shared that with Lydia, and um, I said, you know, you are the actualization of grandpa's desire. Your life with Jesus is the actualization of the desire that Grandpa Corny had. And that desire is so beautiful when it's actualized. 
And she actually, out of the blue, reminded me of it later this, that week. Like, hey, didn't Grandpa say that he wanted me to know Jesus? And I was like, oh. Desire changes how we approach life. It changes how we approach death. It changes everything. May Jesus transform our desire so that we can see being all in on Jesus really reshapes our vision for everything else.